I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 13. Proverbs chapter 13, I want to read the 22nd verse. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. I was, uh, I think it was last week, toward the end of last week, I was reading through some things and came across uh, an article, well, read the headline of the article, that, uh, that said that 50% of Americans have no savings whatsoever. And 23% would have a hard time coming up with a, a $400 amount in an emergency. Well, that, uh, that sent me to, to thinking and doing a little bit more research. And there are all kinds of different polls out there and all kinds of different informations that, uh, that is available to us online and so forth. Of course, if you read it online, it has to be true, right? So I found another one that uh, was close, not quite the same, but, uh, but the information was close. They're, they indicated, their polls indicated that 36% were without any savings and 22% had less than $1,000. Well, that's 58% of people that were surveyed that had uh, savings of less than $1,000. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. The book of Proverbs is all about gaining wisdom. The book of Proverbs is factual information, certainly encouraging and inspirational information to show us what God would have for our lives here on the earth. And notice that God's definition, if this is inspired by the Holy Ghost, then according to the Word of God, God expects and intends for us to have plenty. A good man. That's God's definition. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now when I saw some, uh, some of those figures. And I could give you more. But uh, the point's made I believe. When I saw some of those things. I immediately thought about this verse. And God identifies. That his idea of a good man. Has something to do with your abundance. And what you leave behind. Now, I know a lot of people will say, well, that, that kind of talking is just for the Jews. But in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Verse 14 tells us why he did, why he redeemed us from the curse of the law. Most people think we're redeemed from sin, but that's not the whole story. The curse of the law is the curse of sin, sickness, and poverty. Verse 14 of Galatians 3 tells us why he did it, that the, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. How many of you have ever had come across something good or heard something good about uh, what belongs to us, and the devil immediately says, well, that's just for the Jews? Well, apparently that same thought was prevalent, or at least present, in Paul's day. Because Paul had to tell them, he taught them, he reminded them that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law so that all the good stuff we see was for the Jews could be ours too. You go a little further down to the end of chapter 3 in Galatians, you'll find out that verse 29 says, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words, Jesus made us eligible for all the good stuff that the Bible says he wanted to do for the Jews. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'm going to start in verse, the first verse. And it shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God. To observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee. Everybody say all. All these blessings, not one out of a group, 
Hope you picked the right one. All these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Now, folks, if we read, if we read through all the scriptures that I'm planning to, to uh, touch on here this morning, we're going to see this over and over again. But just in case we get sidetracked and refer to them rather than read them through, notice that he talks about the increase of your cattle, your flocks, and your herds, and so, and, uh, so forth. What does that tell us? That tells us that God is not concerned about greenhouse gases like the global warming crowd is. God didn't say, I'll get rid of those nasty cattle and replace them with something else. Folks, don't ever worry about the resources of the earth running out. God knew everything that needed to be here before he made it and put it here. Again, verse 4, blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground and of the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses. That's where you put extra. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself as he has sworn unto thee. If thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord. And they shall be afraid of of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of your body, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. In the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give the rain unto thy land in his season. And to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. Now folks, let me take you just to make a few quick comments about this. A lot of people have the idea that it's contrary to the will of God for us to ever borrow money. Well folks, if it was wrong to borrow, it would be wrong to lend. If it's sinful to borrow, then it'd be sin, it would be, you'd be adding to somebody's sin by lending. Where he says you'll lend unto many nations and not borrow, he's not saying it's wrong to borrow. He's saying you won't have to. Are you out there? And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only and thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day, to observe them and to do them. And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. Now the next verse, verse 15 I believe it is, starts with the curses of the law and the rest of the chapter talks about the curses of disobedience. A couple of things I want you to be aware of. Notice that Moses making his farewell address to the children of Israel. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Everybody from the age of 20 and up has died in those 40 years. And so it's a new generation that's about to go in to the promised land under Joshua's leadership. So Moses, knowing he's not going into the promised land with them, makes his final declaration, his final speech to them, if, you, if we could say it that way. And almost the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy is that speech. He's telling the people. He's making his plea. He's entreating them to put the word of God first in their lives and to keep the word that they've been given. And he tells them specifically in these 14 verses about all the natural and physical benefits that are derived My obedience to the word. It was a shock for me to find out, and I found out some many years ago at this point, I guess. But it was a shock for me to find out that the blessing that God promised the Jews 
and talk to the Jews about entering into. None of it's spiritual. The life to come, the hereafter, as we sometimes say, is not a part of the Jews' thinking. You remember when the Jews kept asking Jesus, will you restore again the kingdom to Israel? They're relying on this being above their enemies' promise. When God appeared unto Abraham in Genesis chapter 11, he promised him natural things, natural benefits, natural rewards for following him and obeying his word, not spiritual ones. And as a result, the life to come is really not a part of the Jews' thinking. But what makes up their thinking, they understood very well from Abraham's example, whereas in Genesis chapter 11, God appears to Abraham and says, follow me to a land which I'll show you, and here's what I'll do for you. He said, I'll make your name great, I'll make you, I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing. So he talked to it specifically about primarily two things, children, riches, Enough in measure so that he could bless other people. That was the promise that God made to Abraham. Now the next chapter, indicating that it was very soon thereafter, it it tells us that Abraham was or became very rich in silver and cattle and gold. So the Jews understand. They understand what Abraham's promise was. They see it in action. And they hold fast to it even today. The Jewish people can make money out of a parking lot. They'll come up with some way, somehow, to prosper. Yet we look at those things, we in the church look at those things, and the devil says, well, that's just for the Jews. You have spiritual blessings. You've got a promise of heaven. And that's much greater than anything about the Jews and what they had. So his attempt is to rob us of what the Bible says is part of the covenant that we have. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 6 says we have a better covenant established on better promises. Now folks, if the covenant that Abraham and the children of Abraham had included prosperity and healing, which it does... You'll notice that nothing was said about healing in those first 14 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 28. But if you go through and look at the rest of the chapter where it talks about the curses, it identifies 14 specific diseases of the day that was a part of the curse of the law. And then you skip down to verse 61 of Deuteronomy 28, and it says also every sickness and every disease not mentioned in this place, in this chapter. That's part of the curse too. So literally every sickness and every disease is a part of the curse of the law. And so much of the church world will say, well, that was the, that was the blessing that was the Jews. It belonged to the Jews. But it doesn't belong to us now because we have spiritual blessings. We've been made new. We've had a place reserved for us in heaven. Well, folks, if that was the way that it went, we wouldn't have, the Bible wouldn't tell us we have a better covenant. It would tell us we have a different covenant. The fact that it says we have a better covenant would have to include everything that the Old Testament had plus the new things concerning the spiritual blessings being made righteous by the blood of Jesus and so forth. You couldn't call it the better covenant because you're not comparing apples to apples. The fact that it does speak of a better covenant established upon better promises, that has to compare to what the Jews had and then bring into the reality of what Jesus has done for us spiritually. Now, one thing that I've noticed over the years is that if the devil wants to rob people of blessings, he makes something controversial. Because as long as you're in the middle of the controversy, you'll never receive what God has for you. You've got to settle the controversy, and the only way to settle it is through the word. If you're going to receive anything that God has, you're going to have to settle the controversy. For example, 
Look at the controversy that's existed in the church throughout the church world for 2,000 years about speaking in tongues. The controversy is not about being baptized in the Holy Ghost. There's a lot of people that don't speak in tongues that claim to be baptized in the Spirit. Well, if that's true, then they've got something different than what the Bible describes. But the controversy is about speaking in tongues. Now, what does the controversy result in? Well, it results in a lot of questions, a lot of wonderings, a lot of assumptions or surmisings. But nobody will ever be, be filled with the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues as long as they're mired in the controversy. Look at the controversy about healing, physical healing for the body. There are different camps in the church world. Some say that healing's been done away with altogether. Well, that's pretty easy to refute. But then others say God does heal sometimes, but you never know if it's his will. Folks, nobody's ever been healed wondering if it was the will of God. Ever. The one guy, and only one, that came to Jesus questioning his will to heal. Jesus immediately touched him and he was cleansed from his leprosy. Jesus immediately responded. The leper said, Master, if you will, you can heal me. Now look at what he believed. He believed God was able, but he didn't know if God was willing. And until he can get that question answered, he cannot receive his healing. The reason for that is you can't have any doubts about God's will and stand in faith to receive something. Faith begins where the will of God is known. So Jesus immediately answered it, stretched forth his hand instantly and said, I will be healed. And he was. Nobody else came to Jesus wondering what his will was concerning healing. Now there were times and situations where Jesus had to um, tweak their faith, so to speak, so that they began to believe the right thing so that they could receive. And there were some cities that refused to accept what Jesus was saying, and he could there do no mighty work. He didn't do any healings like he was sent to do. Well, that controversy rages today. In spite of the fact that the Bible says clearly that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we were healed. Another controversy is, among, is about tithing. Some people say that the tithe was a part of the law of Moses from which Jesus satisfied and finished. And so the tithe is not necessary. Well, on one hand, they're right. It's not necessary. It's only necessary if you want the blessing of God. They'll look at financial things and material things as being unclean or as good as unclean and think that God doesn't want anything to do with or want us to have anything to do with material things, material blessings, wealth, and so forth. But folks, that's how he drew Abraham in. People will point to the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. He named a couple of the uh, Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler said, all these I've kept from my youth up. It's probably why he's rich. And it says, Jesus looked on the guy and loved him and said, there's one thing that you lack. Sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, the one thing you lacked was treasure in heaven. Now, what does treasure in heaven really mean? Well, Jesus said it this way. He said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And the rich young ruler balked and went away grieved, as the Bible says, because he had great possessions. I think the reality is the great possessions had him. And that's what Jesus is trying to fix. That's what he's trying to correct. He's trying to get him to have treasure in heaven. In other words, it's hard to be in heaven instead of the things that he has. Well, some people will look at that story and they'll say, well, see, God doesn't want you to have anything. Anything you do get, he wants you to give away. That can't be true. That can't be true. Let me read to you another verse from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11, I believe it is. Verse 24. Notice this. It says, there is that which scattereth and yet increases. In other words, he's saying there's a giving that will increase you. 
But there's the contrast. And there is that which withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Now, the word meat means right or appropriate. So he says, the, the, uh, the book of Proverbs, the Holy Ghost is telling us that there's a way that you can increase by giving. Now, folks, to the world's way of thinking, that's just ridiculous. The world's way of operating is to get everything you can, can it, and bury the can. The idea of giving to increase is just totally foreign to most of the, the way most people think. But the Bible says there's a way to give and increase. If you want to know what that way is, it's to give in faith. It's to give in faith, believing that what God's word says about increase will come. Luke 6.38 says, given it shall be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give unto your bosom. For in the same measure that you meet or give, shall it be measured unto you again. Now think about that for a second. If he's saying that giving is a formula, and it works like gravity in every case, then why would banks not be giving money away? The biggest way, the quickest way to increase for anybody, everybody, including businesses, including financial markets and so forth, would be to give. But it's not that. It's not a formula that, that works every time. It's a formula that works under certain conditions. And that condition is faith. But here in this verse where it's talking about <clears throat> there's a giving that increases, that giving in faith, believing what God's word says will increase you. But he also says that withholding more than is meat or right or appropriate can lead to, can lead to poverty. Now notice there is an appropriate or a proper or a right way to withhold. See, when people look at the story of the rich young ruler, they think God wants everybody to give away everything they have. Not so. I like what Smith Wigglesworth used to say, or at least it's reported that he said, he said, make all you can, give all you can, and save all you can. Well, it would have to be true that God doesn't want you to give away everything if it's true that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. God wants you to have storehouses. And he talks about storehouses in the plural, not singular. God wants you to be blessed. Now, I think one of the controversial parts of the tithe nowadays at least the last thing that I heard and was made aware of is that some people are saying that Jesus is the tithe. And because he tithes, there's no need anymore for us to bring our tithes into the storehouse. But Hebrews chapter 7, and I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. If it wasn't Paul, it was certainly somebody that was under Paul's ministry because it's Paul's message. But I believe it was Paul. Whoever it was was inspired by the Holy Ghost. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, that people were still going to the temple and tithing. And rather than rebuking them and saying the law of Moses has been fulfilled. Now, folks, think about this. Think this through. If it was Paul, nobody was stronger on the need or the importance of substituting for the law of Moses faith in Jesus. Nobody was stronger on that than Paul. Nobody was stronger on that than Paul when it came to not keeping the feasts or the, the holidays, the Jewish rituals and th so forth, the things that had been fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. Nobody was stronger on that than him. His whole message to the Galatians, the reason why he wrote to the Galatians about Christ redeeming us from the law is because the Jews had come in after he had left and imposed upon the people. Faith in Jesus is fine, but you still have to keep the law of Moses. Paul wrote back to him and said, you're idiots. He said, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you to take you back into things that have been accomplished and fulfilled and finished? So Paul would have been the first one in line to rebuke people for doing things according to the law that were not appropriate under the, the, in the church age. But he doesn't ring them out for tithing. He said, here men that die receive tithes. Tells us that when Paul wrote 
to the Hebrews, wrote what we know of as the book of Hebrews, the temple still stood, which means it was before 70 A.D. And while the temple still stood, they were receiving tithes. And Paul said that the giving of those tithes witnessed to the fact that Jesus was alive. But people want to get involved in the controversy. And it seems to me that every time a controversy comes up, it's designed specifically. We know who's the designer. It's the devil, of course. But these controversies are designed specifically to rob the children of God of blessings. And so many people fall into it. Look with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'm going to begin in verse 12. It says, Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he swear unto thy fathers. He's talking about Abraham. It all started with Abraham. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land, thy corn and thine, the wine and thine oil the increase of thy kind in the flocks of thy sheep, in the land which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee. We've talked about this before, but it bears mention at this point, I believe, that the promised land, along with the crossing of the Red Sea, coming through the Red Sea on, uh, with the waters parted and all that kind of stuff, the Bible tells us that everything that happened to Israel happened to us as examples. In samples is the word the King James uses, but it means example. And it's telling us that these things are principles, examples for us to learn. Now it tells us specifically that Moses and the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea on dry ground was a type of the new birth. It's a type of being born again where you come out of the bondage of Egypt, which is sin, a type of sin, always is used as a type of sin. So it's talking about the example of the new birth where we are delivered from the bondage of Egypt or the bondage of sin. And we enter into a new life with God. But then they come to the promised land. Many times people look at the promised land and all the blessings of the promised land. And they identify that with heaven. But it can't be a type of heaven. Because when you get to heaven there are no enemies to fight. There are no battles. There are no giants in the land. There's none of that stuff. It's all been done. It's all been accomplished. So if it's not a type of heaven, if the promised land is not a type of heaven, what is it a type of? It's a type of the church age. It's a type of everything that belongs to us because of what Jesus did through his sacrifice. It's a type of being filled with the Holy Ghost and speaking with other tongues. It's a type of entering into the healing power of God because Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. It's a type of of prosperity, deliverance from poverty because the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And nobody can read these chapters, these scriptures, and come away without being absolutely assured that God wanted Israel to prosper. He wanted them to be free from the bondage of their enemies. He wanted them to be above all nations of the earth. That was his plan. Now, it never turned out that way because Israel wouldn't obey the word. And every time they disobeyed the word, they'd go back into bondage. Somebody else would invade their territory or invade their land, take them captive, take all their people, take all their goods, and so forth. And then after a period of being under bondage to these people, God would deliver them again and again and again. But then they kept making the same mistakes. They'd go back into bondage. But that didn't have anything to do, and it certainly didn't change what God's will was for what he wanted them to have. And as we've said so many times before, God never changes. If this is what God wanted for his people in the Old Testament, he has to want at least the the same or better for his children under the new. And that's the whole point Paul's making in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us so that the blessing of Abraham would and could be ours. Paul was of the opinion that the spiritual benefits of the new birth of having an eternal resting place reserved in heaven, did nothing to negate the blessings of the old covenant. 
Otherwise, he would have said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, so that the spiritual blessings that belong to us in Christ could take the place of the blessings of Abraham. But that's not what he said. So let's go back to verse 15. Well, verse 14. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. There's no action verb in this, folks. He's simply saying these diseases will come on those that hate me. It's not saying God's the one making people sick. And thou shalt consume all the people which the Lord thy God shall deliver thee. Thine eyes shall have no pity upon them. Neither shalt thou serve their gods, for that will be a snare unto thee. I want you to notice also, folks, that God expected the children of Israel, as an example to us, to be completely, totally separated from the things of the world that would hold them back from the word of God, from obedience to the word of God. If thou shalt say in thine heart, these nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? Thou shalt not be afraid of them. But shall well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and unto all Egypt. The great temptations which thine eyes saw. And the signs and the wonders in the mighty hand and the stretched out arm. Whereby the Lord thy God brought thee out. So shall the Lord thy God do unto all the people of whom thou art afraid. Again these are physical things. They're looking for the defeat of their enemies. Their natural enemies. That's why they kept asking Jesus. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? We just want to be out from under Roman rule. Jesus told him again and again, my kingdom is not of this world. But that's what they looked for because that's what they interpreted the blessings of Abraham to be. And that's what they were. Moreover, the Lord thy God will send the hornet among them until they that are left and hide themselves from thee be destroyed. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, I'll bring you a total victory so that anybody that's not killed, any of your enemies that are not killed... They'll be sought out by hornets and taken care of in that way. Thou shalt not be affrighted of them. For the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. Terrible to your enemies. And the Lord thy God will put out these nations before thee little by little. Thou mayest not consume them at once lest the beasts of the field increase upon thee. In other words, he's saying, I'll let you take care of these one at a time so that the people that are left can take care of the land before you get there. But the Lord thy God shall deliver them unto thee, and thou shalt destroy them with a mighty destruction until they be destroyed. And he shall deliver their kings unto thine hand, and thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven. There shall no man be able to stand before thee until thou hast destroyed them. Skip with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Start in verse 6. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. Remember this is a type of the, of the church age. A type of the blessings that belong to us through Jesus. The Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. A land of brooks of water. Of fountains and depths that spring up out of valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive oil and honey. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Let's read that again. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. This is a picture of the day we live in, folks. God doesn't want any of his children to barely scrape by. He wants his children to have an abundance. And the purpose for that abundance is so that people will see the favor of God that's upon them. Just as I woke up the other morning, I heard these words. I hadn't even been studying along this line, really didn't even know I was going to go this direction until then. But I heard these words just as I, I woke up. Prosperity is a reward for a life lived committed to God's word.
Prosperity is a reward. It's not the only reward there is. But it is a reward for a life lived in commitment to God's word. That's true, isn't it? Over and over again, it says, if you'll keep the commandments. I think a lot of people are looking for what Proverbs calls, or what we call, get-rich-quick schemes. There's a, a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 20. It says, a faithful man shall abound with blessings, but he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. I think a lot of people hear the the message of claiming the blessings of God by faith and they want to use God or treat God or treat his word as some way for them to get back above water, get their head back above water, come to a place where all the things that I've done, all the trouble that I brought on me, and, and folks, we might as well admit it, most of the trouble we encounter in life is what we brought on ourselves. There's hardly any trouble we can find or experience in this life that could not or would not have been averted or avoided altogether if we'd done what the Word says. I know that's certainly true in my case. Isn't it yours too? But I think a lot of people are looking for God as a get-rich-quick scheme so that they can then do whatever they want to in life with what they have. And folks, that just won't work. God knows whether or not you're committed to his word. He knows where you're at. He knows where you're starting from, and he doesn't hold that against you. But he knows the sincerity of your heart, too. He knows whether you're really committed, whether you're all in or not. And the Bible is real clear about saying that the doer of the word will be blessed according to his deed. In other words, the doer of the word will be blessed according to how much, how frequent, how committed to doing the word we really are. And you can't fool God. I think a lot of times people fail to receive the things that they say they're believing for because unknown to us, they're not really committed wholly and fully. Now, we can't make that determination But everybody knows what's in their own heart, don't they? Back to verse 9. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. God wants your life to be full, folks. And that doesn't mean just your belly. He wants your life to be full of blessings. And the word will bring those blessings into your life. Just as a natural course of being committed to his word. Verse 11, beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments. In other words, he's saying watch out for what's happening in the day that we live in now. Watch out for the attitude the entitlement mentality that comes as a result of enjoying plenty. Children brought up in, pro- in, uh, in prosperity have to be taught that God is the source of the blessings that they're enjoying. They have to be taught, they have to be instructed, not just told every now and then. They've got to be instructed, trained. Where the Bible says train up a child in the way he should go. This is one way that we should train our children. We should be an example of crediting God and his word for everything that we have. Our children should hear us say that the Lord is the answer. He's the source of these things. Our children should see the, the, the thankful attitude we have toward God because he is the source of our blessings. These are things that have to be taught. If they're not learned, then they fall into this thing that Moses is warning them against. 
He said, don't forget that it's God that did it. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and are full and hast built goodly houses and dwell therein. God must be okay with good houses. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, must be okay with that too. And thy silver and thy gold is multiplied. The fact that he mentions it tells us he's okay with that. And all that thou hast is multiplied. Then thine heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God. Which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness. Wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought. And there was no water. Who brought thee forth water out of the flint. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna which your fathers didn't know. That he might humble them and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. That he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. Folks, does anybody know what the power to get wealth is? It's a, it's a very interesting scripture. Because the word power and wealth are both the same. You could read it, he gives you power to get power. You could read it, he gives you wealth to get wealth. He's saying specifically that God provides something to his people. He provides something to his people that will bring them to the place where they walk in, enter in, and enjoy the fullness of his blessings. And the blessings that this is talking about are material things here on the earth. The power to get wealth is very simple. It's the same power that brings anything and everything else from God. It's faith. Remember these blessings were the, Abra- were the blessings of Abraham. Abraham believed God's promise. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now you know as well as I do that there are a lot of things the Bible says we can have. That don't automatically come to us. Until and unless we begin to believe them specifically and begin to confess them. Because that's what it does. Faith believes in the heart based on what God's word says in spite of what the circumstances look like. And because the faith believes in your heart what you don't see or what doesn't appear to be in this natural realm, that's when we make our confession. And our confession brings those unseen things into being. So in the same way, faith in God's word, knowing what he said, knowing what he wants, knowing his will for your life, believed in the heart, no matter what your financial situation looks like, and spoken from your mouth, brings that wealth into reality. You know the most important part of that verse, though? I mean, the first part is pretty good. He gives you the power to get wealth. Have you ever thought of faith as being the power to get wealth? Well, if you haven't thought of it, then there's a pretty good chance you haven't begun to confess for it. But you should think that way. It's what God wants for his people. And remember the promised land of Egypt, of uh, Israel, excuse me, the promised land for Israel, the Canaan land, is just simply a type of what belongs to us through Christ Jesus in the church age. Well, what belongs to us through Jesus? Isaiah 53, 5 says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. That means he paid the price for sin, both original sin and personal sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is the word shalom. It's translated prosperity in a number of places throughout the scripture. One of them is Psalm 35, verse 27. Let the Lord be magnified. Yea, let them say continually, Blessed be the name of the Lord, who delights in the prosperity of his servant. The Bible says God delights in your prosperity. He doesn't have a problem with you having enough. He doesn't have a problem with with you having what a lot of people would consider to be too much. He doesn't have a problem with any of that. He delights in your prosperity. He just doesn't want your heart turned by the things that you have. 
He doesn't want, to lose, want you to lose sight of where your heart is. That's why giving is such an important thing. That's why paying your tithe is such an important thing. It proves. It's an act of faith. It proves that your heart's in heavenly things. See, folks, after Jesus comes back to get the church, we will have no further need of the material things that are on this earth. Now, after it's all over, after the tribulation is finished, the seven years of tribulation is finished, after the thousand years of the millennium is finished, then God makes a new heaven and a new earth and and brings us back down to the earth to live here with him. He brings the new Jerusalem down to the earth. It gives us the dimensions of these things, of this one city. And it's massive. Now the new heaven and new earth will have whole new resources. Will they be the same resources as we have here? I don't know. Will that existence be the same thing that we enjoy here? I don't know. We'll have redeemed bodies rather than physical bodies. That's one thing that we do know for sure. But my point is simply this. The only time for the church to make use of the resources that are here now is here and now. So when the Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children and the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just, when is that going to benefit the just? If not before Jesus comes to get the church, then not at all. Now, why did the Bible say, and it's not the only place that it does say it, there are three different places where the Bible says the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Why in the world would God tell us that if he didn't want us to make use of that scripture, that promise, that truth in some specific way? Folks, the only reason God ever said anything to us is to bring it to pass. He didn't waste one word. There's not one word of scripture that's unnecessarily there. And the only purpose that he's ever had for his word is for us to believe it. Act in faith according to it, including confessing it. And take hold of it. Even when the Bible talks about in Haggai chapter 2. About how the glory of God will be so great in the end times. Right in the middle of that passage of scripture. Those three or four scriptures. God says the silver is mine and the gold is mine. Why would he tell us that? I mean he's getting all spiritual on us. When he tells us about the glory of the Lord. Shall be greater in the last days than it is in the former. He's getting all spiritual when he says. He'll shake all nations. And bring the desire of all nations to pass. That desire that he's talking about is the rapture of the church. The reality of the sons of God here on the earth. And then right in the middle of that passage of scripture. He says the silver is mine and the gold is mine. What does he want us to do with that? I think for the most part the church looks at that and says well I wonder why that's there. Well I have some wondering why it's there too. But when I know and realize the truth of the scripture that tells us and shows us and is an example to us of every word of God being full of power. Every word of God specifically promised to us to fulfill what he intended it for. I'm left with no other conclusion but that God wants us to know it and believe it. Look for it. Look toward it. And get ready to take hold of it. What other reason would there be for him telling us anything? See, the only reason he tells us what Jesus took our infirmities, tells us that Jesus did take our infirmities and bear our sicknesses, is so that we can know and realize that by his stripes we were healed. Only reason he told us. That Jesus paid the price for sin so that we can take hold of righteousness by faith. Well, then what would be the reason for him telling us that Jesus, the chastisement of our peace was upon him if he didn't want us to take hold of prosperity too? Are you out there? 
I hope this is just loosening up some rusty gears in your thinking. I didn't finish with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. Let me read it again. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. The important part of that scripture is not just that he gives us the power to get wealth. The important part of that scripture is not just knowing that faith is the power to get wealth. One very important, maybe the most important part of the scripture is the last phrase, as it is this day. You know what that means? That's Moses telling the children of Israel the promise of blessing and abundance. The promise of making your name great as God told Abraham. And blessing him. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 10, is it verse 20? It said, the blessing of the Lord maketh rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Well, we know what the blessing of God did for Abraham. It made him very rich in silver and cattle and gold. And then the third part of the promise that he made to him, the third thing he said to him about the promise, is I will make you a blessing. Folks, you can't bless somebody with something you don't have. It's impossible. You can't give what you don't have. And so if God's plan for Abraham was for him to be a blessing, then that would necessitate that he would have more than he would need for himself and his family so that he could help and bless and be a blessing to other people. This phrase, as it is this day, means that's just as true today as it was when God first told Abraham. God shows mercy and keeps covenant for a thousand years unto those that love him. I'm sorry, it's not a thousand years, it's a thousand generations. Now I want you to turn with me to Scripture in 2 Kings chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of prophets, sons of the prophets, unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondsmen. In other words, they're going to be sold into slavery under this guy until the debt is paid. Now, folks, realize that it's telling us who this guy was. He was one of the sons of the prophets. He was one person that God used in ministry and speaking to the people and ministering to the people. He was somebody that was used to deliver the word of God unto them. Now, that's an admirable thing. That's a great thing to be involved in. But remember, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. This was not a good man. Now, let me try to soften that blow a little bit. Because I'm not against a guy. I don't know who he was. Maybe he loved God with all of his heart. I assume that he did. But there was some part of the promise of God that he did not reach out in faith to take hold of. In every other area, he may have been the best guy that ever lived before Jesus came. But this is clearly an area that he neglected. The promise of God belonged to him just like it did anybody else. Folks, if we're going to enter into some of the things of God, we're going to have to focus on them. We're going to have to make them a priority in our lives. Doesn't mean it has to be the biggest priority in your life. But you have to give due attention 
or maybe attention to where it's due. Proper and right attention to the things that are right and due. So she's in a mess. No fault of her own. She didn't come saying, my Nordstrom bill got out of hand. Elisha said unto her, what shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in thine house? And she said, thy handmaid has not anything in the house save a pot of oil. Now we assume that would be either oil for lighting lamps and probably used also for cooking. But she says, that's all I've got. Folks, that's pretty much down to The nub, isn't it? Then he said, Go borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all these vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. Bring me another one, in other words. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. And she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. Now, folks, that's a wonderful story. <clears throat> and I think a lot of times people look at stories like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And again, it becomes this quick answer idea. But the Bible says, he that makes haste to be rich shall not be innocent. It's not an overnight turnaround. It's lifestyle of obedience. Who was this woman? She was a woman that had dedicated herself and her household to follow with her husband under the things of the Lord. That's who he bailed out. That's who God bailed out. He didn't bail out some nobody that's always cursed God throughout his days here on the earth. Prosperity is a reward for a life lived in commitment to God's word. Now can we believe God to keep us afloat until we get, make it a lifestyle? Absolutely. God's not against you no matter where you start. He's always on your side. But just like the Bible says in Psalm 107, verse 20, he sent his word and healed them. He sent his word and provided wealth for you too. Now, a lot of people don't want to receive healing through the word. They want God to do something and initiate something on his own. And he sometimes does. But you never know when he will do that. But he always honors his word. He always makes good his word. In the same way, there may be some windfall 
that comes upon a person.
to. Because that's all God's looking for. He's looking for you to put your faith on something so he can bring it to your life. Now, if you haven't been doing that, this would be a wonderful place to start. This would be a wonderful place to say to the Lord, from now on, I'm all in. Everything you show me to do, I'll do. Everything the Bible says and I can read and find out for myself that the Bible tells me to do, done. Because God will take you right there, from right there, and credit to your account. Treasure in heaven. And it will become a reality in, here on the earth too. Let me, find, let me finish with one final scripture. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruit of all thine increase. So shall your barns be filled with plenty and your presses shall burst out with new wine. Now he has to be talking about the tithe here. He says, Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your increase. So shall your barns be filled with plenty. Notice where it's telling us, folks, that if we bring our tithes unto the Lord in faith, expecting what God said to come to pass, to actually come to pass. It's saying that our barns will be filled. We give to God and it fills our barns. I want you to get that concept. Now again, some people will say, well, that's Old Testament stuff. It is Old Testament stuff, but it's not Law of Moses stuff. In Genesis chapter 14, where Abraham paid tithes unto Melchizedek, he didn't do that as part of the law. He didn't have a law. He did that on his own accord to honor God. And so he paid tithes to Melchizedek. That was 430 years before the law was ever given. How can it be fulfilled or done away with by the law of Moses? Can you find anywhere where the Bible says stop honoring God because of what Jesus did on the cross? Did Jesus tell us that it's this way for right now but it won't be this way long but for this short period of time until I go to the cross where your treasure is that's where your heart is. But all that will change when I'm raised from the dead. No that never changes. The thing that made the tithe so important as an example to us and something for us to follow is because Abraham did it on his own. He came up with the idea on his own. And it honored God to such a degree that it became the pattern for all of God's children. Now folks, tithing has to be more than just putting a certain amount of money in the plate. It's got to be an act of the heart. You've got to be believing something when you take action on it. You've got to believe that it shows honor to God. Paul said it did in Hebrews 7, 8. He said, here are men that die, receive tithes, but there is a witness that Jesus is alive. That's honoring God, isn't it? Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your increase. So shall your barns be filled with plenty. <laughs>